Well, hello everyone. My name is Andy and I lead the church here, uh, City Church in Bristol. Great to see you all. Thanks for joining us if you're joining us online. Today we're going to be looking at the final installment of our preaching series, looking at meals with Jesus. We called it Just Eat, and we haven't been sued yet, so we got away with that one, uh, so that's good. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to read a passage from Luke chapter 24, so if you've got your Bibles, you might want to uh, look that up. Uh, tomorrow is uh, kind of the father, rather peculiarly named Freedom Day, uh, and it seems like most of the restrictions that we've been under for a very long time now are going to come off. Just to say one or two things about that, you're going to have all sorts of mixed feelings about that. Some of you are going to be utterly euphoric, and at one minute past midnight, you'll be in the clubs, which apparently are opening at one minute past midnight. Um, or you may just feel like this is utter madness, what on earth are we playing at? Or you may be somewhere in between. Uh, I'm not, I mean, we all feel the way we feel, and that's, uh, that's kind of down to our own experiences and feelings and kind of values. But one thing that we share is, is what the Bible says about how we care for other people. And the Bible, as a principle, says this. It says, prefer others over yourself. Think about your neighbor first. Uh, put yourself at the back of the queue. Uh, don't push yourself to the front. And so well, however you feel about what's happening in our country and around the world, I ask you to consider that. That's how Jesus lived. That was the example he gave. He put others before himself all the way through his life to death and beyond. And so as we open up and we have these freedoms, let's consider those who might still be very fearful. Um, certainly amongst us as a church, that's going to be true. Amongst our own family as a church, very true. And also true, of course, in the wider society. So just asking and just reminding you that in the possible euphoria, excitement, or fear, whatever it is that you're feeling, that these are things that the Bible teaches us clearly. And just asking that we consider those things as we change our kind of outlook a bit. So there we go. Just to say also that the, the bid that we talked about a couple of minutes ago for Debenhams uh, actually goes in, is submitted on the 22nd of this month, which is very exciting. So please do pray for that. I'm sure there's lots of questions about like, how are we gonna pay for this and all the rest of it. Those questions get answered if you watch the video on YouTube, which is a bit longer, but worth a listen to. Lots of contributors from that community group, that connect group, uh, who have been looking at this bid on our behalf. It's a great opportunity, obviously. Okay, we're gonna read this passage now. When, as I read this passage, I'm going to afterwards just refer to three phrases from this passage of scripture. And I want to use those three phrases as a kind of prism uh, through which to examine what this passage is about and to help us understand something of what it's in the Bible for. And what I'd like you to do, just a little exercise, as I read the passage, why don't you guess what are those three phrases going to be? Uh, as we read Scripture, the Scriptures often, uh, as I do, and I'm sure as you do, the Holy Spirit will, will kind of illuminate a piece of Scripture to you. In other words, it's, a, it's as if it lights up on the page. It, suddenly it's like, wow, wow, what does that mean? And what I've done is uh, literally uh, uh, kind of concocted this sermon out of that happening. But uh, why don't you do that as we read the Scripture? What, what questions do you have as we read this through? Are there phrases for you that stand out? You mustn't be afraid of asking difficult questions of Scripture. And if you think, what does that mean? That's a really, really good question to ask. And there's all kinds of study and theological background to many of these things that you can go find out. Anyway, here we go. So I'm reading from verse 13 of Luke 24. Uh, the title in my Bible is On the Road to Emmaus. 
That very day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And they said to, he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding when you, as you walk with each other? And they stood still and looking sad. Then one of them named uh, Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we'd hoped that he'd be one to redeem, the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were in the tomb early in the morning, and they didn't find his body. They came back saying they had visions of angels, and, said that, and they said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, the scriptures, and the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is towards the end of the evening, and the day is now far spent. So we went in to stay with them. And there was a table with them, and they took the bread and blessed it. And he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they were, they were told what happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth that we have before us, Lord. Thank you that's come to us down through the ages, the centuries, Lord. And we want, by your Holy Spirit's power, for this to change us, to affect our thinking, to shape our lives, Lord Jesus, to encourage us, to instruct us. Lord Jesus, thank you that's what your word does. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit's power, we would experience that now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first phrase I'd like us to look at from this passage is, in fact, the opening few words, that very day. And of course, when you read a passage that starts that like that, and particularly if you read it in isolation, you ask the question, what day? <laughs> what day? What is this day that you're talking about? What's just happened, and why is it important? Why would you call a day that very day? Well, of course, this is the day that Jesus has risen to life. This is a day like no other day before and like no other day since. This is that very day. This is the day when the world changed forever. The world was transformed forever on that day. And now you might be listening or watching, you might be in the room, you might be thinking, yeah, but I'm not a believer, I'm not a Christian. Why is that day important to me? Well, it is important to you as well as to people of faith. There is much thinking around that very day, even in contemporary culture and society. There are modern historians like Niall Ferguson and Tom Holland who are saying clearly and with great detail of history, saying that very day is very significant for our cultures. 
That very day for Western culture is pivotal in a way that we've been saying, those of faith have been saying, yes, we know it is. They're saying, without it, the very fabric of what we call Western society could, well, collapse. What they're saying is that that is a day like no other day, and that is what the Scripture tells us too. And it's not surprising, I guess. It's surprising maybe it's taken them so long to conclude that, but that is what they are saying. They're saying that if you are passionate about things like human rights, like judicial law, like the sanctity of life, like the importance of the individual, if you care about those things, then you owe it to that day. That day is where history was shaped and changed. And that day is, of course, uh, passionately important to believers too, because that's the day Jesus rose to life. And so when the writer Luke uh, starts this passage with that very day, he does so carefully, but he also does so prophetically. He would speak forward into modern culture and society in a way that he couldn't have conceived, but he was absolutely right. That very day, a Jewish carpenter rose to life after he was dead for three days. And the fact that we still hotly debate that fact thousands of years later should give us, if that fact alone would give us food for thought. I drove here this morning, I passed church after church after church. And our, our cities, our towns, our thinking, uh, the systems of culture, our society is formed around that very day. It's so important. Jesus had continually said, directly and indirectly, that he would die and rise again. They'd been very confused about what that meant because they knew, and we kind of intrinsically know, well, that doesn't really happen, does it? People die and that's it. Surely that's it. We've always known that, haven't we? And then the Bible explains something even more fundamental. That isn't how it's supposed to be. I lost two friends in the last few weeks, one quite young and one much older, people that we had known for many years, both uh, believers in Jesus. Now, even the fact that they are believers and that the Bible says we will meet them again doesn't change the fact that that's a devastating sadness and to be wept and mourned over. And that fact, too, should give us pause for thought. After all of this time, after all of these centuries, why does death still surprise us? Why is it so horrific? Why is the separation so devastating? Well, the Bible has a clear explanation. That's not how it was supposed to be. That wasn't how it was supposed to be, to be torn apart from people that we love. We should have got over it by now. I don't even mean that glibly. I mean, if, if, if we just are subject to the progression of evolutionary thoughts, surely we would have come to terms with it by now, but we haven't, not even a, not even a little bit. Absolutely, fundamentally devastating to us. Why? Because it's not how things are supposed to be. And the Bible clearly lays out why that is the case. And yet on that very day, death was defeated. It was finished with, it was done. It no longer had the final word. Jesus conquered death and he conquered the sin that grabs us and pulls us into it. He did it. He finished with it. It was done with. And he said, follow me and you will experience that kind of life that breaks open graves. You will experience it yourself and one day you will meet me in glory 
with a new body and a new earth and a new creation and see what it is in its fullness. And it all started when? On that day. It was such an important day. The nation of Israel was waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a savior. They were waiting for a hero to ride over the hills, literally, and come and rescue them from the oppression of the Romans. But so much more than that, their belief in the Messiah wasn't just that it would be an end of war, but it would be the beginning of, of peace like there had never been. A shalom peace, a peace that was in each individual, but also in the culture and the society. A peace in the workplace, a peace in the school, a peace in the home, a peace in the fields, a peace in the cities. A progressive, even aggressive peace that would change everything. They called it shalom, and that's why they greet each other even today with that phrase. Shalom, it's a peace that is vibrant and living. And on that very day, that kind of peace, even as they understood it was too small, but it began to happen. It began to be a possibility. On that day, they would come to understand, begin to understand as we begin to understand both the cost of a peace like that and the scope of the promise to bring that kind of peace, the promise they'd waited for for so long. You see, it wasn't just about a nation. It never was. It was about all the cosmos, all of humanity over all time. And Jesus began on that day. You see, that kind of peace doesn't come through political ideals or regime change. It, uh, it doesn't come about uh, because you have a lot or you don't have very much. It doesn't come because you're educated or you have a lot of natural ability. It happens when Jesus gives men and women new hearts. And he gives them radical new identities and a fearless faith to continue teaching that message on and on and on. And it begun on that day. So when Luke uses a phrase like that, it is absolutely full of prophetic promise for us and for our cities, for our nations, that we will believe that on that day, everything had changed. And yet there's a reality to what they were experiencing because that day had happened. They said, didn't they, in the passage, three days have passed since all these things. We know the significance of those three days. And yet as they walked on this lonely road to Emmaus, all that had begun, it had happened. Death had been conquered. What were they doing? They were lamenting. They were sad. They were very sad. They were walking a road late in the evening, lamenting the hope that they had had. All that they had imagined might happen. All of that kind of pregnant hope in the culture, in themselves, all the things they'd seen Jesus begin to do, all the hopes they had for their nation and maybe other nations too. It all, it seemed, had come to nothing. And they were lamenting. It's as if they just were looking at the back of a tapestry. I don't know if you've ever done that where you... You see the front of a, a beautiful tapestry. It is stunning. And then you flip it over and it's an absolute mess on the back. It's as if that's all they could see. Just the, the kind of maze of integrated work on the back and, and not looking at what Jesus was producing on the other side. And the phrase, the next phrase I'd like us to look at that'll help us understand this is this horrible, sad sentence in verse 21. We had hoped. Oh, that's so full of sadness, isn't it? We had hoped. We had hoped. 
And they said, oh, we'd hoped that this Jesus would, would be the Messiah. We'd hoped that he would change everything. And of course, we know as, as they walked along the road, Jesus began to open the scriptures saying, look, you know these, this is your history. Do you see how this Jesus fitted so well into all the prophetic background to who you are and where the, the nation had got to? But still, they're living in this we had hoped world. world. This is a world that we are very familiar with. We live often in a we had hoped world or maybe an I had hoped world. You see, they had this hope for for regime change, in fact, that the Romans would be kicked out, that this, this, this kind of progressive peace would break out amongst them. But we have our own hopes too, don't we? You could fill in that sentence, I had hoped, and then put your own ending to it. Maybe it's something like this. I, oh, I had hoped, I'd hoped I'd be married by now. I'd hoped I'd have a better job by now. I'd hoped I'd be well by now. I'd hoped life would be a bit easier by now. I hoped I would have earned a bit more by now. I'd hope my children, I'd hope my children would be happier than they are. I'd hope that England would win the Euros. I wrote this before. It's sad, isn't it? It's sad. I would hope that England would be a less mad society than it is. I had hoped. We had hoped. I'd hoped that this horrible pandemic would properly be over by now. I had hoped, we had hoped. Proverbs 13, 12, this hope deferred makes the heart sick. When you, when you live in hope for something and that thing doesn't materialize, it's like a sickness of the heart. It's a very fundamental thing. It's very undermining. It's very energy sapping. It destroys faith. It, it destroys happiness. It's all kind of things. It eats away at us. And I bet there's not a person in the room or watching who doesn't know something of the reality of that. The verse in Proverbs doesn't end like that, though. It says this, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. There is more to this story. It doesn't end with we had hoped, but we have to consider it because it's something that we live with so frequently. You see, if we've said before, their hope was for an end to Roman occupation. Essentially, that was, their, that was their daily grind, their problem. That was the challenge they faced that an oppressive regime had taken over their country and dominated their culture. They were oppressed and they were enslaved, or albeit enslaved. They had to pay taxes to Caesar. They had to use coins with a king who said, I'm God. <laughs> it was all of this highly offensive to them. They'd hoped for a king like David, a, a Goliath-slaying rescuer to come over the hill and save them all for victory over their enemies. A Messiah, they called him. But here's the thing. They thought they knew what hope realized looked like. And we do too sometimes. They thought they knew this is, when this happens, all will be well. When the David-like king uh, kicks out the Romans, then all would be well. And we do the same. You don't even have to be a person of faith to do this. We all do it. We have, maybe if I read those list of, of, of hopes earlier, you might have added your own to them. And the end of the sentence can be what we think hope realized looks like. I had hoped 
If, if this thing just happened, then all would be well. If this thing just happened, then all would be well. And you fill it in for yourselves. They had done the same thing. They'd done exactly the same. When this Messiah arrives, the Romans will be gone. We get our country back, then all would be well. Life will be good. I'll be satisfied when, and then add your own something. The truth of this story, though, is that what they would have added and what you might be adding to is so much smaller than what is being offered. It's so much less satisfying than what actually is being given to us on that very day. In Isaiah 9, we read this, of the greatness or of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. No surprise where they get their idea of a Messiah like David from. And, on his, and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And into that, they read a very narrow answer. That this, would, this is how it would be. This is what would happen. And you might be doing the same. If, if God is real, then why doesn't he sort out my problem, my the issue that's, that I wake up with, the issue that I go to sleep with, the issue that dogs me through the day. Why doesn't he solve that thing? And we might even read it into the Bible there. Well, C.S. Lewis, and we couldn't go a sermon without quoting him, could we? At least maybe I couldn't. In his great work, the, the Weight of Glory, he writes this about our hopes and expectations. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside, we are far too easily pleased. And scripture is telling us that of ourselves too. It's telling the nation of Israel that, but it's telling us that too. Brothers and sisters, you are too easily pleased, too easily satisfied. God is changing the world forever. And if you think that sounds crazy, listen, churches like this, great buildings throughout this city are built on the belief absolutely in that fact, that God is changing and will change everything. We put our hope in our, our joys uh, in our goals, our very small goals and hopes. It's our plan. It's not necessarily his plan. Graciously and gloriously, he does bring about answers to many of our challenges, but that's not the story that he's telling. He's telling a bigger story, much more wonderful than the one you or I had planned. And he's inviting us to join him on that journey. In the final phrase, to help us understand this passage is this. Their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. You see, the, one of the strangenesses of this story and of many of the resurrection stories is that though Jesus was recognizable, it seems that for a while they didn't recognize him. And for part of this journey, he was kept from them in their understanding. But it was in this meal where he became known to them and their eyes were opened. They went from lamenting to wondering and rejoicing. 
They went from sadness over their lot to a complete change of heart and mind. In fact, they changed physically, changed direction. Have you read in the story, it was the end of the day. It had been a long journey. They're encouraging Jesus, their fellow traveler, come and eat with us. The, the day's far spent. It's all over. The night has come. It's done. Immediately, their eyes are open. What do they do? They get up and they travel through the night back to Jerusalem. Their plans changed. Their motivations changed. Why? Because they knew now. They knew He's risen. He's risen. They didn't know all the implications of it yet, but they knew nothing would be the same again. They knew their plans had come to nothing. They knew the things they had hoped for were too small, too limiting. They now needed to find out what is his plan? What is he doing in the world? What, what does this mean? And they were going to gather together with those who did understand a little bit to find that out. And here we are 2,000 years later doing the same what, is, what does all this mean? What does all this mean? Now just briefly as we close, there are three things in an answer to how did this happen? How were their eyes open? Just three brief things. They understood something. They experienced something. And then something ignited within them. So the story is this, that Jesus took them to Scripture. The Bible that they had, such as it was, and he unpacked it for them. He explained what it meant. The gospel has content to it. There's things to understand. If you're wanting to explore Christianity, you need to begin with God's word. And you could do that through all kinds of ways. Sit down with a friend and ask them to explain it to you. Get yourself on an alpha course, which will be starting, I'm sure, uh, come the autumn here. But there are many ways to do this. But this is what they began with. Jesus unpacked the familiar scriptures to them. They would have been very familiar with all of this. And yet suddenly they realized it's about him. It's about Jesus. And all of it is. In fact, when you begin to explore these kind of things, you realize so much more is about him than you ever imagined. And that was their experience too. So they, they understood something. They experienced something. It says in the passage, didn't our hearts burn within us? And they're not talking about indigestion. Didn't our hearts burn within us? Didn't we begin to grasp something that seemed beyond our grasp? That happens when you explore Jesus, explore Christianity. Suddenly you see and before you didn't see. And it is as if your heart was burning with you. There was a hope that eclipses the smallness of the hopes that you've lived with up to that point. I've noticed this in people's journey towards Jesus and as they begin to understand, as their hearts begin to burn within them, the questions they have change. They change. And suddenly it's like, I had all these questions about the, the authenticity of Scripture and can it be true? And, and suddenly I want to know Jesus. I didn't expect it. I've watched online, I've watched very serious scholars saying, I find myself believing and I don't want to believe. I don't know what to do with it. In tears. Say, how, what do I do with this? This is what's happening. It happened then, it's happening now. Their hearts burned within them. And then something else happened. It's like an ignition. It's like all those things come together and life explodes within them. The Bible calls it being born again. And I think that's probably what's happening to them. Suddenly they believe, I believe, I believe. Find that they believe. Is it faith? Is this elusive thing? Actually, it's powerful. It's a powerful thing that works within you by the 
power of the Spirit of God working within you. So there was something to understand, there was something to experience, and then there was an ignition of life within them. That's a journey you might want to go on. You want to ask God to help you with it. So Jesus explained how all that happened in Jerusalem was part of their story, part of the nation's story, part of their journey. And then they ate a meal together. So simple, such a simple thing. They just, they just ate together. It seems, I think, from reading the scriptures that Jesus had a particular way of, of saying grace. We've talked about this before, even recently. We say grace at home. Because why? Because I want to acknowledge where this is really coming from and to be thankful for my daily bread. It reminds me I'm not in charge. It reminds me I'm not smart enough or clever enough or wealthy enough. It reminds me that all of the good things are a gift from God. And as Jesus did that, as he thanked his father for the bread, it seems as if he had a particular way of doing it. And as he broke the bread, they saw who he was. They recognized him, even in his resurrection body. And then we were invited to a meal. We're invited to a meal and we call it communion. We're invited to eat bread and drink wine, to partake in all the things that these dear disciples were beginning to understand. And honestly, in the eating and the drinking of them, revelation can come, just like it did for them. There was a realization of our need for him, of his provision for us, of his love and care, of his recognition of our state. All these things we find as we take communion together. We're going to do that in a moment. Let's just pray for us. Father, we thank you for, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the honesty of those dear disciples, Lord, who stumbling along a road full of despair met you unexpectedly. They began to understand something about who you were. They recognized the power that had risen you from death. And Lord, we thank you that they are the ones who began this great message telling around the world. And that's why we stand here today and we pray, Lord Jesus, with courage and faith, we would continue to tell this same story again and again and again. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Andy, for serving us so well, as ever. Um, we're going to just take a moment now to share some communion together. Um, again, Jesus inviting us to remember this radically transformative day in history, um, remembering everything that he's done for us on the cross through a meal that we get to share with other believers. So that it's both something that's intimate and personal and also something that's communal. And I just invite you as you do that to think about what Jesus' death and resurrection has brought for you individually the 
infinite joy of close, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. We were far off and He's brought us close. And hearts also brought us into a community with a family of believers, a radical new community in which God's shalom, his peace and flourishing and his intention for the way things ought to be can begin to break out and be demonstrated. In a year when so many of us may have had very limited time with our extended families, so good to be reminded that we are part of a precious family of believers who have the cross at the center of our lives. So let's take the bread and wine together and give thanks for our individual intimate relationship with God and give thanks for being able to be part of a community of believers, for the joy of being part of God's family. Father, we just thank you so much for, for that family. Thank you that everything that Julia said is true, Lord, that you have brought us together as one. We're one body, even though we're separated. And we thank you even more. We thank you, the Bible says, that when we're joined to the Lord, we're one spirit with him. Just pray, Lord God, please make us more and more aware of that. Lord, just increase that, Lord God, that we would not just understand, but we'd experience that every day. Lord God, of just being one spirit with you. We thank you that when guilt wells up in our hearts, I think we've got an answer to it, and the answer is right here in our hands, Lord God. It's, it's in Jesus, in what he did on the cross. So we just we thank you for that. We honor you for that, Lord, as we worship. worship together. Shall we stand? Exalted 
shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing praise. Are you Lord? All the earth, all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing praise. And someone just to come alongside with you and pray with you, you can do that. Find someone here, find someone in the pastoral care team or on your side, or you, 
even maybe it's something a bit bigger and you, you just appreciate someone from that team to come alongside you, you can email us pastoralcare at citychurch.org.uk and we would love just to stand with you and support you and pray with you through whatever it is at the moment. So we're going to finish there. Um, Thank you, as I said, so much for being here. Don't forget, we're not around in this building or in any of the other buildings next week, but we are going to be in our our kind of pop-ups. So get online after this. Book yourself into one if you can, and uh, we'd love to see you at one of those. Have an amazing, amazing rest of the weekend, and we'll see you soon.